Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. I think for me, uh, one of the most valuable ways of looking at things, which I again got from many sort of Japanese thought, but it's Japanese thought in a tradition which comes really through China, from India, really. There's a, there's a kind of way of looking at the world there in which the bitter and the sweet are kind of inseparable and they have to be taken as one. And this is, this is manifest most obviously in the cherry blossom season. Now, the cherry blossom season in Japan is truly an important time of the year. It is kind of like the equivalent of Christmas. It's a time where people have holidays, they have picnics under the cherry blossom. The thing about the cherry blossom is it comes, it blooms, and it is beautiful, but it lasts hardly any time at all. In the first strong wind, it blows away. And so at this time, what people are really appreciating is the fleeting beauty of the cherry blossom. It's this beauty which doesn't last. And knowing it doesn't last when you're looking at it gives the experience of appreciating it a kind of a a bitter edge which goes along with the sweetness. Now, I think that is such a valuable thing to be able to do, to be able to hold those two things at the same time, not to allow the bitter to spoil the sweet, as it were, but also not to kid yourself that the bitter isn't there. I have discovered to understand a culture's philosophical tradition better is to understand that culture better. The perceptive words of British writer, philosopher and teacher Julian Bagini from his new book, How the World Thinks, A Global History of Philosophy, published by Granta Books. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. How important is nature to Chinese culture and tradition? What exactly is African spirituality? And why is the connection to land and sea so valued in Maori culture? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to explore those questions with British writer, philosopher and teacher Julian Bagini, whose latest book, How the World Thinks, A Global History of Philosophy, has just been published by Granta Books, where Julian writes... Most people do not consciously articulate the philosophical assumptions they have absorbed and are often not even aware they have any. But assumptions about the nature of self, ethics, sources of knowledge, the goals of life are deeply embedded in our cultures and frame our thinking without our being aware of them. Julian goes on to state, we cannot understand ourselves fully if we do not understand others. So what does philosophy do? And what is its role in our lives? So I'm Julian Bagini and I'm a writer, philosopher. I've written a lot of books and newspaper magazines and articles basically about all aspects of philosophy. And I'm always trying to relate them to issues of everyday life. And this latest book, How the World Thinks, is an attempt to actually be something of a philosophical journalist and to try and find out what are the most interesting and important ideas from the global traditions of philosophy, the things that help us to begin to understand them. That's very interesting when you say there, uh, Julian, that you're trying to be a bit of a philosophical journalist. Presumably that gets you into all sorts of trouble, does it? Well, it can do, yes. I mean, in a sense, it's designed to keep me out of trouble in the sense that, you know, no one can be an expert on all the world's philosophies. 
And so if you try and sort of like become an expert to write a book like this, then you're going to fail. So I think you have to accept the limitations, accept there is no expert. So the only kind of person who can write a book like this is someone who approaches it like a journalist, who goes to speak to a range of experts who really know what they're talking about, but then can kind of distill it, bring it together, make the connections. Um, so, you know, it, it, in that sense, he's trying to keep me out of trouble <laughs> by making it clear that I'm not claiming that I am the world's foremost expert on every philosophy in the world. Well, I have to say it's a very stimulating and expansive read, How the World Thinks, because you cover so much ground um, in terms of the locations you go to and in terms of also how you look at religion and belief systems, whether you're looking at through the lens of uh, buildings or pieces of architecture like the Alhambra, or if you're looking at texts and, and actual documents of history and so on. It's so, so interesting. Tell me, do you think people underestimate the power of thinking? Yeah, I think they do, actually. I mean, it's an interesting point about history here, because um, Jonathan Israel is a historian who's written about the Enlightenment. And, you know, I think the, the fashionable views in history for a while now have been that, you know, what shapes events is, it, you know, economic forces, social forces, and so forth. And the ideas don't really have anything to do with it. Now, you know, it's certainly true that perhaps people used to have it the other way around, and it's always a mixture of factors, but... As Israel says, you can't really understand what happened in Europe during the Enlightenment, things like the French Revolution and so forth, unless you appreciate that, at least in part, and largely in part, driven by ideas. Because the thing is, ideas shape the way we all think in ways we're not necessarily aware of. So, you know, in the West, we are generally quite individualistic, something everyone accepts as kind of true. But there's a whole kind of set of like philosophical assumptions behind that individualism. You know, there's nothing sort of natural about it. It's not something which every human at all times has thought. And so behind every kind of way of thinking is a set of assumptions, a set of, a set of beliefs, um, shaping our thoughts in, without us even realising them. So what prompted the book? Because, as I said, you're covering a lot of ground. You're moving between traditions and looking at the similarities and differences as well. Um, so what, what prompted the book and what was the big question you were asking yourself? Well, I mean, it was a combination of curiosity and embarrassment. I mean, the embarrassment <laughs> comes from the fact that, you know, I've got a PhD in philosophy, uh, you know, so I'm fully qualified <laughs> as a philosopher. And yet, you know, because my philosophical education was in the English-speaking world, it was entirely a Western uh, education. Philosophy outside the West was considered to be, you know, something else. It may be interesting, it may have merits, but it certainly would be of interest to anthropologists and sociologists, but whatever it was, it wasn't really philosophy. And over time, I gradually came to think this was actually too, too neat. It wasn't quite as simple as that. There were things of interest in other philosophies. And, and the more I found out, the more I wanted to find out more. And, you know, and then I realized that, of course, there's very little on this actually published for a general reader in, in the English-speaking world. So I realized this is something that probably other people would be interested in as well. Now, if you've got a combination of something that interests you and you think it might interest other people, that's when you know you've got an idea for a book. I was very interested in um, your passages or your chapters on Islamic philosophy and you bring up such a range of different types of thinkers and religious figures. And it is quite difficult really to kind of, I suppose, separate uh, philosophy from religion, isn't it, in the Islamic world? It is, in, it is in large parts of the world, in large parts of history. In fact, it's also been true in large parts of Western history as well. The, the neat separation of religion and philosophy is a fairly recent thing. 
Now, in the Islamic world, this is particularly of interest, of course, because a lot of people are, you know, uh, see Islam in a very negative sense, and they kind of think that it, the Islamic world needs a kind of European-style enlightenment uh, to avoid this so-called clash of civilizations. Um, and then that would really mean the Islamic world would be able to separate out its religious thought from its other kinds of thought. Now, I think that if you look at the history of Islamic thought, that would seem to be a naive view. It doesn't seem at all likely that it will happen. There was this kind of time in the Middle Ages where Islamic philosophy really flourished. And, you know, a lot of the thought there was it's very less constrained by the theological side than before. But it, it, it never uh, completely sort of separated out philosophy and religion. And certainly since that Islamic golden age, theology has arguably had the upper hand. Now, the point is that nonetheless, if you look at the development of thought in that part of the world, you find there's a huge amount of diversity. And, you know, to say that it's always uh, tied to theology does not at all mean that it's intolerant, that it's fundamentalist, that it's literalist in its interpretations of the Quran and so forth. And so I think it's really quite important to, to recognize the fact that, you know, what the, the rest of the world, as it were, what the rest of the world could most want from the Islamic world is not the unrealistic idea that it can separate out its philosophy and its theology, but it can sort of like develop those strands in its thinking, which are there in its history, which are more tolerant, open, uh, less literal-minded. There's a lot of it there. You know, it's not asking the Islamic world to do something which is never done. I'm just wondering, though, Julian, um, you write religion claims priority over reason, which means that it's been difficult to reinterpret Islam in the light of contemporary science and to force its teaching to accommodate secular knowledge. So within that, I'm just wondering, how important is open and free philosophical inquiry to to the Islamic world and Islamic teachings? And within that, um, is science and Islam in conflict? Or is that stretching it a bit? Well, I mean, again, I'd be very wary, very careful about what I say, um for various reasons, but mainly because, as I said, I'm not an expert on this. I've I've learned a lot from people who are experts, and so I think have got the, the sort of the headlines in place. Um, in terms of the relationship between science and uh, theology in Islam, I think that's a very much a, an open question. I mean, the idea, the, you know, most intelligent <laughs> Muslims do not believe that the Quran contains sort of you know is the last word in science. It just isn't. You know, uh, All that's necessary is that whatever science comes up with has to be in some sense compatible with what's in the Quran. But, of course, the Quran is open to a lot of interpretation. So that shouldn't necessarily be a troublesome thing. I think perhaps where it's more difficult, actually, is not so much the science issue, but some of the, some of the moral teaching of the Quran is, is fairly clear. And so it, I think it's very difficult to see, actually, how... Islam could accommodate itself to things like equal rights for, you know, homosexuals and or trans people, and and things like that, because it does seem very clear on the importance of the different roles of men and women in heterosexual relationships. Um, that, in a sense, I think could be more of a stumbling block, more of, more of a source of conflict than any sort of fundamental problem with accepting science. And what about ideas on predestination? and ideas related to recorded destiny? Because I know that's something you do bring up in the book. How significant are they? And then where does that leave things in terms of how we look at human free will and agency and, you know, being accountable, morally accountable to ourselves and what we do in the world? Well, it's, 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 I find 
that one extremely interesting because, again, the, the passages in the Quran and also in the Hadith, the Hadiths are the um, secondary texts in Islam, which are not the revelation directly uh, of, of God to the Prophet, but um, recordings of sayings and teachings of the Prophet. A lot of them are very clear that, you know, whatever happens is God's will, and nothing can change that. And there are passages which kind of suggest that, you know, your history is, as it were, written before you're even born. <laughs> now, this is peculiar because it would seem then that there's no real such thing as free will, and that what you choose to do makes no difference, and also that you can't really be held responsible for what you do. But what's kind of peculiar about this is, of course, in the Islamic world, people are held responsible <laughs> for what they do, at the same time as other teachings suggest that you know, everything is happens is God's will and everything is kind of predestined. Now, that seems to be a contradiction. And I think, you know, if I was to push that philosophically, I'd say it was a contradiction. But I think one thing you sort of do learn as a philosopher is that in, in broader society, people don't have much trouble uh, maintaining contradictions. And so, you know, in a sense, you push it too hard, it seems like it makes no sense whatsoever. People in their own minds can both accept people have responsibility, believe they have choice, and yet at the same time believe everything happens because of God's will and everything is written. It is interesting, though, because it is similar, similar kind of ideas uh, are found in, in, across India about sort of, you know, some certain inevitability of certain things happening, uh, karma taking its toll and so forth. Uh, I think that mainly people fall back on those things for comfort in, in hard times. So in a sense, they kind of believe they have certain capacities to make for a better world and improve themselves and so forth. When things go wrong, people kind of comfort themselves with, well, it happened because it had to happen. What will be, will be. In fact, if you think about it, that's what a lot of people do in Western countries as well. They don't have the whole kind of philosophical backstory to it. When bad things happen, people say, well, you know, it, it was meant to be. It's a kind of source of comfort, isn't it? I have to say, Julian, I loved your chapter on naturalism. And I know you actually um, went over to China and you went to Japan. And you went, you visited a lot of countries as part of the research for the trip. But I'm just interested in something that, you know, I um, I loved Japan when I visited. I loved uh, learning more about uh, Shinto and, and Shintoism and visiting all the different types of temples and so on. But I found it a very conformist society. And there seemed an inherent lack of flex- flexibility within the society as I was there. And I'm just wondering... Uh, what you what you think about that and how that relates to belief systems and what it tells you? Yeah, I mean, I I, I was fascinated by uh, both China and Japan, but I think especially Japan. I mean, it's interesting you said it's a kind of a conformist society, and I, I kind of having been there, I think that's not quite the way I'd put it. I think from the outside it seems to be conformist, but actually, uh, I found the behaviour more often than not was better described as what I'd call pro-social. So it's not that everyone's trying to be the same. It's just that there's always a 